It is uh, another opportunity that we have now to consider the Word of God to us through Peter. And uh, we're building on what Peter has already um, written and the first few words in the first four verses of this book that he has written to these Christians. And uh, there is a progression that he's talking about. If you were here when we first started our series, we noted what our faith is and what we all share in common and our identity in Christ and uh, the fact that we are in a relationship with Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Last week, we had the joy of looking at what God has done for us. It's profound and full and complete. Everything that we need for life and godliness, all the precious and magnificent promises that we might become partakers of the divine nature have been given to us in Christ. These are gifts that God has given us without us doing a thing. As we come to the text this week, then, we begin to look at our response then to what God has done for us. And there's various titles that uh, I looked at from uh, different commentaries that have been given to this section, and it gives you a sense of the work or the effort that Christianity or the Christian faith requires. One person had the title over these particular verses that we'll look at, verses uh, 5 to 8. Um, the title was The Productive Christian. Another is the... Uh, the balanced Christian, or a third was equipment for the way. And you can see in there that they're talking about an effort, or they're talking about the work that we now as Christians do as we walk with God. As I thought about this text, and as I've been trying to gather my thoughts together, I realize I've probably bitten off way more than I can chew, and probably way more than you can chew. Because I want us to think about three things, or I, I want to kind of bring together three things that help us as we figure out what Peter is doing and how we apply it to our lives. And one is to understand the breadth of the gospel or the fullness of the gospel. And that's why I've put it in the title of my message this morning, Gospel Assurance. The second theme is the theme of assurance. Assurance is a huge issue in the Christian life. And so many people struggle with assurance in their life. And so Peter addresses that. But he addresses that in the right way or in the gospel way. And then, of course, the third issue is this issue of working faith, a faith that is a vital or a, a growing or a developing faith. And so as we come to this particular text and the title that I've given it, Gospel Assurance, you, you think, well, why gospel assurance? I think it's important that we understand that there is an assurance that God gives to us and that we gain in walking with God that is a true and a real and a right assurance. But we can also have a false assurance in our faith. And so we need to understand the difference between the two. For instance, we have read this scripture a number of times over the last few weeks, but it helps to come back to it. There are those who on that final day, the day of judgment, when we stand before God, and in fact, it's many, it will say that many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? They had this confidence that they were following the Lord, that they were doing these things in his name. And Jesus' response to them is, I declare to you, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I think they were shocked when Jesus says that to them. And he says, not I, I, I knew you, but I don't know you any longer. He says, I never knew you. I think we can go to another instance of the Pharisee who was standing uh, praying before the Lord. And there was a, another man that was um, beating his chest and um, praying and crying out to God. And here we have the, the Pharisee standing and he prays thus, this way. He says, God, 
I thank you that I'm not like other men, uh, not an extortioner or unjust or adulterers or even like that tax collector over there. I fast twice a week. I, I give my tithes and all that I get. But the tax collector who was standing afar off wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven, but is beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says in commenting on it, he says, I tell you, this man, the, the one that was beating his chest, went down to his house justified or right with God rather than the other one. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And so there is the possibility that we can, in our own pride, convince ourselves that we have an assurance with God and our relationship with God when in fact we don't. So if one can have a false assurance, it really does matter that we understand where we actually get a gospel assurance from. One that is the fruit of grace and mercy that has been poured out in our lives. And as we've been trying to say in the readings that Andrew read and in the introduction, even the start of this, the gospel assurance begins with an understanding and a confidence in what God has first done for us. Before anything else, our assurance of our relationship with God and our foundation and our salvation is rooted in what God has done for us. But there's a secondary way in which we gain assurance, and that is through how we respond to what God has done for us. And so the first way, and this is what Peter began with, the, the first aspect of the gospel or the first component of the gospel is to dwell in and think on and relax in and enjoy and appreciate everything that God has done for you. That's where the gospel actually begins. Before we can ever do anything, we have to receive something. And we need this gospel balance. And it's because of then what God has done for us that then we are able to respond and to respond in obedience. You, you might remember how, when we were in the book of James about a year ago, that James goes to great lengths to show us that saving faith is a working faith. That though we are justified by faith alone, that faith that justifies is never alone. In other words, there's a result, there's a, there's a product, there's something that's produced by saving faith. And as we combine those things and we understand those things, we come to what I would call a gospel assurance. And we find this throughout the Old Testament, we find it throughout the New Testament, but it's in the pronouns that some of these writers use. And there's a familiar one that the psalmist used in Psalm 23. He says what? The Lord is my shepherd. That's an assurance that he had that he was God's and God was his. There's a, a, a passage in Romans that we often read, and I wonder if we read it over quickly, but he says, for I am sure that nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. That is a gospel assurance based on what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. Peter or Paul in another place says, the Lord will rescue me will rescue me from every evil day, deed, and he will bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Or in another place, he writes, for I am not ashamed. I am not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed in, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what he has entrusted to me. Or another passage, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. 
I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only me, but all who have loved his appearing. It was Martin Luther who said, the heart of religion lies in personal pronouns and being able to say, my God and my Savior. And so Peter moves us into the response of faith to all that God has done for us. And it's that response of faith which Peter says gives us assurance that our faith is a real and a vital faith. And I've already mentioned the first part of this, which is the foundation of assurance. As Peter begins to talk into our working in verse 5, he begins simply by saying, for this very reason. For what reason? Well, everything that has come before verse 5. For all that God has done for us, for all that is rooted in God's great gifts for us, for all God is still doing in us, for all God that will promise that God will do for us, the work of God in us, the work of Christ for us, the application of that work to us by the Holy Spirit. And we've already seen how we've been saved by His righteousness, how God has acted towards us in grace and mercy, how His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness, how he has called us through a saving knowledge of him, how he has rescued us from our sinful nature, how he has made us partakers of his divine nature, how he has given us his precious and magnificent promises. These are the things that God has given us. And so Peter says, for this very reason, in light of all that God has done for you, make every effort to supplement your faith. Loved ones, these things don't do justice. We could go through the Bible and it intended to do this, but there is scripture after scripture after scripture which references the promises of God for us, the keeping power of God upon us, the finishing work of God towards us when the end comes, the fact that no one can snatch us out of God's hands, the fact that God will keep us blameless until the day of Christ. These promises and these these statements and these prophetic words are woven throughout Scripture to give us the assurance that God will never, ever let us go. But then Peter moves from that and he says, for this very reason then, because of what God has done for us, Peter then moves into the work of assurance. And this is where he says then, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement. This is the second general means of assurance, of gaining assurance as a Christian, as a child of God. We gain assurance as we see the life of faith grow and blossom in us, as we see the gospel that God has given us in Christ transform our life. We gain assurance as this new life takes hold of us, as our saving faith is made manifest in a working faith. And you can see it in such language where he says in verse 5, make every effort. And then you see it in verse 8 there. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing. And then we come to verse 10, where it says, if you practice these things. This is not the language of let go and let God. This is not the language of raising my hand and putting my trust in God and then going my merry way. 
Not at all. Peter is describing the language of saving faith or of a working faith. So in light of all God has done for us, he says, make every effort. Give it 110%. Be earnest. Approach learning and growing with an earnestness and an urgency. Be diligent in working out your faith. Peter is not saying that when you put your trust in Christ, give it a try. He's not saying, what he is saying is, is never give up. Never stop working. Never stop trusting. Never stop growing. Never stop learning. Never stop developing what God has given you. Make every effort to do what? To supply. This is an imperative. It speaks about doing what is necessary to grow in the Christian faith. As one supplies seed for a crop, or as God supplies the Spirit for us to walk with us and to give us an, an assurance of our inheritance. As Peter says, it's the same word that says entrance into heaven will be richly supplied to you or given to you. So the point is, make every effort to add to your faith those things that will strengthen it and fill it out and give it balance. That is the work of assurance. And as we put effort into supplying what is necessary to round up our, our, out our faith, Peter tells us very clearly we gain stability in life. He says you will never fall. We'll look at that in a couple of weeks. And we can be confident of a rich welcome into heaven. We don't have to die in fear. We don't have to live in fear. Will God accept me? Will he not? Am I really a Christian? Peter says if, if these things are added to your faith, as they fill it out and as they, as they supplement it, and as you practice these things, you will have an assurance of a rich welcome into heaven. This word supplement or add, this verb is, comes from a noun which um, is from the Greek word korygos, which literally meant a leader of a chorus. A leader of a chorus was one who um, filled out a Greek play. They provided the necessary singers and the necessary actors and the, and the, and the necessary backdrop for the plays that they would produce. And he did it at his own expense, and they didn't do it cheaply, they did it lavishly. And it was, it was, and so this word is a word that's descriptive and pictorial of what we are to do to our faith. We are to fill it out, to give it balance, and to spare no expense in adding to our saving faith. The point is that we are to work out our faith, that the foundation of our assurance is God, but that that assurance is then worked out as we make every effort or supplement our faith. And then we go to the next point. Well, what do we add to it? Well, Peter describes then the stuff of assurance. What is it that we add to our faith? What is the stuff that gives us assurance, that, that, that confirms in our spirits that we are indeed children of God, that we are indeed sharers of the heavenly nature? Well, he says, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue or moral excellence. 
and moral excellence with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. This is the stuff of assurance, loved ones. This is gospel assurance. This is the gospel that, that speaks of a transformation that takes place in our life. It speaks of a moral advance, of a growth in what God has provided for us. And this is some list. It's not the only list that we find in Scripture of how our lives are changed by the gospel and how our lives show forth the gospel. You can go to Galatians chapter 5 and read there about the fruit of the Spirit and, and, and what the presence of the Spirit in our life looks like and how that grows and how it blossoms and how it produces fruit in our lives. You can go to 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 11 and 12, and you can see there the kinds of things that Paul talks about are characteristic of the man of God. What we find here in Peter is not necessarily a, a, a comprehensive list, but it's a representative list. And what I find fascinating about this list is that all of these qualities that Peter tells us to add to our faith are qualities or characteristics of God. And so these, these then characteristics that we add to our faith remind us and show forth and prove to us that we are partakers of the divine image that God is restoring in us. And they confirm our participation in that divine image. And he begins by saying, add these things to your faith. That's to a saving faith. That's to a faith that he's described in verse 1 of chapter 1 here. It's a personal, experiential faith given to us by God, built on the righteousness of Christ or, or, or flowing from the righteousness of Christ. We already read that verse, by grace you have been saved by faith. And this not of your own doing, it's a gift of God, not as the result, so that no one may boast. And what Peter is telling us is that faith is not static. It's not a once-for-all reception. It's the start, it's the seed, it's the seed plot of just tremendous growth and expansion in the Christian life. Faith wrote one is a whole-souled response involving mind, heart, will, and affections. And I've said it before, and I'll say it again, and we said it in James, that we are saved by faith alone. And I will, I will defend that, and I will prove that through Scripture again and again. We are saved by faith alone apart from works, apart from observing the law. We are saved not because of anything we do, but because of everything God has done for us. But if good works do not follow our profession of faith, we are as yet only believing in our head, and it's not worked itself down in our hearts, and it would be safe to say that justifying work is not yet ours, because we are justified through faith alone, but the faith that justifies is never alone. It produces moral fruit in our lives. It produces a transformation in us. So Peter writes them, reminding them what a, what a full-blown faith looks like in the child of God. 
what we are to supplement to it or fill it out with or balance it with. And today, I'm not going to go through all of these qualities. We'll do that over the next couple of weeks. We'll look at what they each mean. But, but for now, what I simply want to do is kind of put them in three broad categories for us. And the first category is simply the character of faith. And I, I think that's what the first two virtues or qualities describe. It's the character of our faith. Moral excellence and knowledge, they go together. Being a Christian is not just being a morally good person. There's lots of morally good people. But it's moral excellence balanced with a knowledge of living that excellence out in life, of knowing when to, of how that goodness is worked out in the situations that we face. You see, there's a moral quality to our faith. Our faith is just not something that sits up here, but our faith is something that begins to blossom or develop into moral excellence. And we take that moral excellence and we apply it to daily life, to our marriage, to the raising of our kids, to our relationships in the workplace, in school. It's this practical application of moral knowledge to the saving faith that we've received in Christ. It's a winsome character. And so we add these virtues of moral excellence and of knowledge to our faith. But then there's an inward disposition of our faith. We, here we add or we supply to our faith self-control or self-mastery and steadfastness or endurance. It's a faith that watches oneself. It's a, it's a faith that is, that is managed or or that is, that is mastered. It, it's, a, it's, a, it's a faith that guides us and directs us and shapes us and constrains us. It's a faith that endures through trials and difficulties. It's again the same word, steadfastness or endurance, that we looked at James. Consider it all joy when you face various trials of all kinds, for it produces endurance. And so a saving faith is an enduring faith. It's a faith that is not characterized by wanton behavior and recklessness. It's a faith that's characterized by self-control and by endurance. And then there's a third category. Not only does these, do these begin to point to the character of our faith and the inward disposition of our faith, but they talk about the relationships of our faith. And there's three words that Peter uses here. He says, add to your faith godliness. Well, what does that mean? Well, it means that our faith is worked out in relation to God and in devotion to God. There's an upward character to our faith. There's a desire to please God, to live before the audience of one. And then he says, and add to your faith brotherly love. Well, what does that include? Well, that includes the brothers and sisters in Christ. If you have a saving faith, how can you hate your brother and sister in Christ? How can you not forgive them when God brings something forward to you? How can you sit there and despise them and judge them? Peter says, no, add to your faith brotherly love, a concern for your brothers and sisters in Christ. But then he says, and above all these, add love. Well, what is that? It's, it's love for all. Love your enemies. Love your neighbor as yourself. You see, a, a saving faith is a transformative faith. And Peter says, add these things 
to your faith. Supplement, fill out, balance your faith with these things. And loved ones, as we see those things grow, then that's the stuff of assurance. Because these are the qualities of God. And as we see those growing in our hearts and lives, as we work on them, as we, as we discipline ourselves, we all of a sudden realize, I am a child of God. I'm beginning to think like God. I'm beginning to, to share God's thoughts and God's concerns. And, and his will is my will. And his kingdom is my desire. As Paul says in another place, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And finally, or not finally, fourthly, there's the choice of assurance. I say this very carefully. And I, I, hope, I hope I can explain myself and, and, and you, can, you can work it out through the Holy Spirit through the rest of this day and maybe this week. But the choice of assurance. Take it or leave it. I mean that quite literally. I want to highlight again how Peter describes these qualities in these texts. For in verse 8 there, he says, If these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then notice what he says in verse 9. For whoever lacks these qualities... Whoever chooses not to add them to their faith, whoever says, no, nah, I don't need them, he says, well, then they are nearsighted and so as that they're blind, having forgotten that they were cleansed from their former sins. And then in verse 10, he says, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. And then he says in verse 12, I intend to always remind you of these qualities. See, our assurance is rooted in the growth and the development of these products after what God has done for us. And if they're not there and if we don't care and they're not evident in our life, then we have chosen to, to throw away God-given means of gospel assurance. See, option one, he says, if these are yours and increasing, and if you practice these things, it, it's important that we listen to These qualities are yours. If you own them, not just part of the church statement of faith or not just in the Bible, but if they're yours, if they belong to you, if you're embracing them, if you're growing in them, if you're supplementing your faith with them, if they're yours and they're increasing, you never have enough self-control. You never have enough godliness. You never come to the place where you can say, I love my brothers and sisters fully and completely this side of eternity. So if these are yours and increasing, if you are abounding in them, that will keep you from being ineffective or idle or lazy and unfruitful in the knowledge of Christ. Do you see what he's saying, loved ones? He's saying that a true saving knowledge of Jesus Christ is a transformative knowledge. It's a fruitful knowledge. It's a working knowledge. And we remember all that Christ has done for us so that we can become partakers of the divine nature. And he says, if you practice these things, you will never fall. That's choosing assurance. That's choosing to say, I want to live in stability. I want to live in safety. I want to live in security. I want to live in the love of God, my Father. 
He says, if you practice these, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Do you see how these are the stuff of assurance? Do you see why Peter is, is, is pointing these out to these Christians? The benefit and the value of a saving faith that is a working faith? The second option is, well, I'm going to leave it. I don't give a rip about these things. No, they're not important to my life. There's other things that I want to give my attention to and my energy to. Well, he says, whoever lacks these qualities. What, what characterizes somebody who lacks these qualities? Well, first of all, notice, Peter, what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, if you lack these qualities. I'll come back to that in a second. He says, whoever lacks these qualities. He is convinced that, I believe that those to whom he is writing are beginning to show or develop these qualities and embrace these things and practice them in their lives. But there are others. There are people who we would call whomevers. I think that's how Peter might say it. Whomevers who lack these qualities and don't think they're important and don't think they're essential. It's a language that's very similar to Hebrews chapter 6 verses 1 to 8 where the author there speaks about those who have once been enlightened, have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away. It's impossible to restore them again to repentance. But then verse 9 of Hebrews 6 is so important. He's, the writer there says, Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. And so I, what Peter is doing here is he's preparing us for a discussion of the false teachers. He's preparing us for the reality that there are some who believe differently. He's preparing us for the fact that there are some who claim to be followers of Christ who say it doesn't matter how you live. See, because he, he comes there, and, and I think this is how we need to think about this. Is there a difference between a knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and a saving knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. You see, I say that because look at, if you've got your Bibles, turn to 2 Peter chapter 2, and let me read verse 20 and 21 for you. Because it, it meshes back with what he says in verse 9 of chapter 1. He says there, for if... After they, speaking of the false teachers, after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. Their last state is worse than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the ray of righteousness than to, after knowing it, turn back from the holy commandments delivered to them. For what the true proverb says has happened to them. A dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. The whoevers that Peter talks about here, the whomever that he notes, they, 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 those who lack these qualities, he says, are so nearsighted as to be blind, having forgotten the cleansing from their former sins. 
These seven qualities are the stuff of assurance, the practice and growth in them testify that one has come to a saving knowledge of God who has called them by his own glory. The lack of them seems to demonstrate that we've made progress or somebody learned about God and heard about God, but then finally ultimately rejected that and has gone back to their former way of life. Loved ones, I've often reminded you, and I often remind myself that salvation is a process. As much as it is an event. The Bible speaks about this. It absolutely speaks about the the moment that we confess our faith and that we put our trust in God. And that we confess with our mouth and believe in our heart that God raised Jesus from the dead. We will be saved. But the Bible also speaks about the process of salvation, the working out of salvation, the growth of faith in our life, the development of true salvation in our hearts. And it it talks about it this way. It talks about the fact that the believer is one who is saved, one who is being saved, and one who will be saved. And the proof of our salvation, the fullness of our salvation, is that he who endures to the end will be saved. And so... Peter is reminding us here that the evidence of a true saving faith of the ongoing work of salvation in our life is the growth and development of our salvation, the filling out of our faith. It's the choice of assurance. The final thing I simply want to say is this. It's the challenge of this text. You don't have to do this, but I've committed to do it and I've already started this week. The challenge of this text is to make every effort to supplement your faith. I've been thinking about this for a couple weeks now. And it struck me that I need to do more than just read this text and then wait for next week and read the next text and hear it explained to me. I need to take hold of this text. As Peter says... Make every effort. It's not just language. It's not just words that we hear and, oh, that's, that's pretty cool. And then we go, no. He says, make every effort. And then he says, if these qualities are yours and increasing. And then he says, if you practice these qualities. Do you understand? It, it's not just, this isn't a text that is just to be read. It's the text that's to be applied as all of Scripture is to be applied to our lives. So what I'm inviting you to do, if you want to, is join me sort of in a spiritual gym. For for as long as the most recent lockdown orders are in place, and that's until May the 25th, 25 days. What I want us to do is to take Peter seriously, to take the Word of God seriously in our lives. And determine that for a period of 25 days, we will do what Peter says. We will, with God's help in response to all God has done for us, we will now supplement our faith or fill it out or say, God, I want to grow. And so take these seven qualities that Peter talks about. We haven't given you a definition of them. You can find a definition. You can go online. You can go to a dictionary. and You you can at least get a working definition, a a one-sentence definition. And then, starting Monday... Tomorrow, maybe write down in a, if your diary or I did it in my calendar, 
But for each day of the week, there's seven days of the week and there's seven qualities. So for each day of the week, say, I'm going to, on Monday, I'm going to think about and pray and ask God, what does it mean to add moral excellence to my faith? What does it mean to, to think that through and to say, I want, to, I want God, I, I want your perfections, I want your will, I want your ways, I want your laws, I want your righteousness to be applied to my faith and to see that grow and develop and fill out my faith. And then when you come to Tuesday, say, okay, I'm going to add knowledge to my faith today. I'm going to think about that even for a few minutes today. But I'm going to think about what it means to practice these things, what it means to actually look at a situation and think, God, how do I apply moral excellence to this decision that I have to make? And then on Wednesday, then you'd take another one and you'd say, well, I want to add self-control to my faith. And maybe say, God, would you help me? Because there's areas that I haven't mastered yet in my life. And I, I, wanna, I want my, my faith to, to influence my actions and boundary my actions. And you get it all the way then to Sunday. And then every day for the next 25 days to just do what Peter says. Say, Father, I want to practice these qualities. I want these qualities to be mine, and I want them to be increasing in me. Because, Father, I want stability. And I want to know incredible joy and the anticipation of walking into glory one day and receiving a warm welcome. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Peter says it's in these ways that grace and peace are multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Father, I thank you for your word today. And I thank you for the way Peter helps us understand that saving faith is a working faith. But he has the balance perfect. He doesn't start with what we're to do. He starts with what you have done for us, Father, and it is huge. It is massive. What you have done in calling us to yourself and providing for us everything we need for life and godliness and giving us your precious and magnificent promises through which we can share in the divine nature is just incredible. But Father, you ask us then to respond to that great gift. Would you help us by the power of the Holy Spirit to supplement our faith, Lord, to fill it out, starting with these things that Peter mentions to us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.